Well, good morning, church. Hello, and welcome to those joining online, those that will watch us later. Hello to you as well. We are in a sermon series. Woo! Yay! (laughs) Right on. So as we're here today, you notice in your bulletin, our sermon series is entitled Rebuilding the Wall. Now, your your pastor has a sense of humor. As I mentioned before, when we first started this uh, sermon series, it was called Rebuilding the House, and then I actually switched it to Rebuilding the Wall. So I thought about switching it again just to see if you'd notice, but no one would get that humor except me. So I left it. We're just going to stay with Rebuilding the Wall, part three, as we're here today. But uh, thank you for being with us. And let us pray as we're here. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. The Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, hello again, and welcome to our service. We have been in a sermon series, and it's called Rebuilding the Wall. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, which tells this great story of Jerusalem when it has been just destroyed. And the powers that be, the Jews that are faithful to God, have been captured or in captivity. Uh, and they're specifically serving in all sorts of roles. And one of them was Nehemiah. At this point, the people that had conquered Jerusalem, they themselves had been conquered by another empire called Persia. And the king, Atraxerxes, was there. And the cupbearer to him was Nehemiah. And remember the story so far, right? Nehemiah was, was there. And, and you know, word didn't necessarily travel the fastest back then. And so some of his fellow Jews had just come back from Jerusalem. They were coming back in, and he heard that they were in town. He went to meet them, and he asked them, how is it with Jerusalem? Because they still believe that this was the place that God had led Abraham and all his descendants to go and to be, to be a light among the nations, and to basically show the people who God was, and to live according to God's way that was different than the worst of the world, so that the world could know who God was after it had been lost all the way back in the days of the flood. And so as you remember this story, right, he hears the story, and the people of Jerusalem are in bad straits. The walls are broken down. The city gates are still burned with fire and laying in ruins. And the people are hard-pressed, as the scripture says, that they are in a hard time. And so Nehemiah, of course, when he hears these words, as we talked about that first week, the very first thing he did was he took time to grieve. And it was significant. It was four months. Remember that. Like four months he grieved, right? And, of course, part of that grieving was in private because in public, remember, he had to go and put on a shiny face in front of the king and act like everything was okay. And he did that four months as the cupbearer to the king, but he took time to grieve, and we've taken time to grieve, and where we are. He then had that moment where he had to risk himself. He finally just got to the point of saying, you know, is it me or not? Can I do something and protect the people of God with my power, what God has given to me, or am I going to sit back in kind of my comfy life? You know, he cupbearer is kind of a comfy life, quite honestly, and so does he sit back and not do anything? And Nehemiah, remember, as we looked last week, risked himself by going before the king and actually showing his sadness. Because again, the Persian kings, you weren't supposed to be sad in front of them. That was to put your life on the line. They were, you know, the radiant being before you, and you were supposed to only be glad in their presence and happy. So to be sad was sort of an affront. And so when you get there, the, the, the king, of course, asked him, what is it you want? We read in our story here today. And not only this, not only these grieving is going on, not only is he risking himself, but we're going to finally see that when the time was right, he had spent that time grieving to be ready for action. And what I mean by that is you notice in the story, what is what happens? He's sad. King says, what's the matter with you? This must be sadness of the heart because you're not ill. And of course, what does Nehemiah do? He tells him exactly what it is. I want, my brothers are in hard straits. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And the king asks him, what is it you want? So when Nehemiah tells him, you know, send me, let me go and go rebuild it and rebuild this, this place and give me the ability to do this, 
And the first letter, the first thing the king asks, you notice, is how long is this going to take, right? <laughs> right? Because you're my cupbearer, I need you back here at some point, right? But here's the key. Nehemiah had an answer. Don't miss that, right? The time of grieving, you know, sometimes when we think of grieving, we think of it as idle time or wasted time. You know, I could have been doing something more productive. No, 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 no. Grieving time is productive time. It's done right. Because what grieving time does is it actually orients you towards the future. It helps you understand what needs to be done, and it gives you motivation to push forward through what other obstacles that you're going to face. And Nehemiah and the people of God are going to face some obstacles, as we see in this book. Yet that grieving time was so important and so important not to rush through because he was ready when the time was right. And when he prayed to God, Lord, put in my heart what needs to be said, he had the answers for the king. And the king, instead of saying, off with his head, as we saw in the story, says, okay. Right? And then he asked, well, if it pleases the king, can I, you know, have some people to go with me to protect me and make sure and give me all the letters of official, you know, business so that when people ask me, you know, I get safe passage and can get there. He goes, okay. And he goes, oh, if it pleases the king, can I have some wood and lumber to like rebuild the thing that I'm actually going to do? And the king goes, okay, right? <laughs> I mean, he was ready for the time because he knew what had to be done. And he knew that time from that grieving, what needed to be done. You see, and there were some things in this story also that's really important to point out. There were some things that were big ticket items that had to be in place before he could even start on the building on the wall, right? He had to get king's permission. He only needed the king's permission. He had to get, like, the letters of official business to show people and to actually keep people off his back, you know, and protect them. He had to have sort of a retinue of military people to actually protect him from all the scoundrels that were out there and actually get him to the place and actually protect the people once he got there. And then he needs actual materials to rebuild the wall rebuild some of the buildings and the noble houses and things like that that are needed to run the city of Jerusalem. So, but he didn't have specifics, too. Notice that when he got there in our story, he stays there, it says, for three days. Doesn't let anybody know what he's doing. And he sneaks out at night. You can get this picture, like I picture him, you know, riding whatever mount he's got, whether it's a donkey or whether it's a uh, you know, camel or whether it's a, a horse or whatever he's got. He's riding something. Everybody else is on foot, and they're sneaking around the wall. He sneaks out the gate. They go around all over Jerusalem. He tries to get through one way. It's blocked so much, he can't even get the horse or whatever, horse or donkey, whatever he's riding, actually up the, the thing. So he has to turn around and go back. They walk the rest of the wall, and he goes back the same gate that he came out of to investigate the wall, to see exactly what it needed to be done. Now, I think this is a good word for us today to, to think about some of the aspects of this story and where we are. We've been talking about how we are rebuilding the house, rebuilding not just the wall in the sense of this story, but rebuilding this house, right? To be this place of, once again, that we want this place to be the family that we want, right? To look again and feel on Sunday morning when you come here that you are part of family, right? As we've been through some hard times, some maybe divisive times, and now our, our path is now set, our future is now clear, and so now we want this place to be rebuilt and re-strengthened and once again be a place where you come and whoever would come that would come in here and feel like they're part of a family, that they're welcome. But of course, to do such things, I think there's some key parts of this story that are actually very helpful for us to think about. What I mean by that is there's a few things. First of all, grieving doesn't need to be rushed through, right? Remember that. Grieving is not a rushed through process. And if you know anybody in our grieving, um, you know, when we do our, our, our grieving classes here at church, you know, one of the things is it's okay to take multiple grieving classes, right? Like, you don't get kicked out. You don't get, like, a certificate of accomplishment, like, check that off the box when you're done, right? 
If you need to keep grieving and that process is still going, it goes however long it goes, and that's, that's okay. And I say as your pastor, it's okay, same thing, right, for a church. It will be however long it will be, and it will, of course, be different for different people and different times. Be gracious with each other in these moments. Let people grieve. Be with each other and not build them as much as you can. Love each other, but give room for people that maybe aren't as far along a process as you are. And vice versa, be patient with those that are ready to go get them, right? <laughs> when some people are, are ready to hold back and to keep grieving, right? It's going to be kind of a process and kind of, it's always a messy thing with a group of people. But nonetheless, be gracious with each other both ways of that spectrum. But when you think about this, I want us to also think about this idea is that when you rebuild something, it's really important to know at the outset what big things you need, right? There's always when you rebuild something, you got to have some core things in place. Like Nehemiah, right? You needed the permissions and all the letters and all the things in the wood, right? So likewise, when we look at our church and what we're going to rebuild, there are some key things that have to be in place. You just have to have them. And you don't know all the nitty-gritty, dirty work. You haven't had a chance necessarily to go walk up and down the wall and learn every single you know, niche that needs to be fixed or things need to be filled and all that stuff. That's going to come later. But right now, on the outset, you can look ahead and you can say, no matter what's going to happen, this is things we need, right? And that's what I want to talk to you about for the rest of the sermon here today of how we're going to rebuild this. What are the things that have to be in place? What are the things, as we talked about last week when I mentioned to you that there are things that we have to risk ourselves and say, yes, Lord, I will do it, or yes, Lord, send me, or yes, Lord, I'll risk myself, or go through trial, or whatever I need to do to actually be the person to fulfill a role. We're going to talk about those roles here today. But I want to also kind of think about one other thing real quick, and this, this slide right here really kind of gets to it, and I'm sorry it washes out. You know, you do this on your computer at home, and then you put it up on the thing, and well, I'm sorry, it just, hey, I'll read it for you, since you can't read it, because I know you can't, right? So here's what it says. It says, why, just think about this for a second, why is the wall important? I know you can, some of you can read the answer, right? But why is the wall important? For those that read, what, what does it say? For safety, right? Of course, you want to rebuild the temple. Of course, you want to rebuild all the areas of commerce. Of course, you want to rebuild all the bath structures and all the things the city needs. But the very first thing Nehemiah sets out to do is what? The wall, right? Why? Safety. If you're in a land that's in danger, you can't have anything else if you don't have a wall to protect yourself, right? And so Nehemiah sets out to make sure the wall is made. But here's the thing. Walls don't exist for the sake of walls, right? It's not the end means. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's always a means to an end or things like that, right? Walls don't exist just to have walls. Walls exist to provide something else, safety, so that other things exist, right? Those are the true ends you're trying to get to. And what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, the real reason, the real end point of a wall is not just safety, the real endpoint of the wall is that the safety provides the people, specifically in this case, the people of God, that they could thrive and be exactly who God called them to be, right? Because if the wall's not there, anybody else that wants to come conquer them is just going to come marching on in and take it over once again. And it doesn't even have to be the big empires. It can just be some of these other smaller groups of nations that like, just don't like them, and they just go behind the king's back and smother them anyways, right? The wall is a necessary thing, but it's not just the sake for the wall. But the wall is really important to get to the things that really matter, right? Nowhere in Scripture does God say, all right, you will be my people when you build a wall. Right? God talks about you need to worship a certain way, right, to the Israelites. He says you need to do these things. You need to live this way. You need to act this way. This is what my people of God are supposed to do. But none of those things are possible without the wall around Jerusalem. 
So you get kind of it? The wall is important, critically important, first step, but it's not the ends. It's just the means. Likewise, church, when you look at a United Methodist church, there are things that are the means, if you will. There are things that are super important that you have to set up, you have to have in place in order for the church to survive. So we'll move on to the next slide at this point. And so there's key structures in the United Methodist Church, in a United Methodist Church, a local church of the, the denomination. And here are some of them. And, you know, why are these structures important? Well, they're important because, first of all, they provide structure, as the name kind of suggests, right? They offer discernment and ways of churches to work through discernment. They offer ways of working through decisions whenever something comes up or working through problems. And if you don't have those there, even if you do all the other things that we're called to do, the end things, sometimes those stuff get all tripped up and falls apart because you don't have a way to work through things. Now, again, just like the wall, these things are critically important to have in place. They have to be there, but they don't exist for themselves, right? There's a bigger purpose, right? These structures exist not because these structures are the end means that God wants a church to be. These structures exist so that the other structures that we're talking about, other things that come along that really define who God has wanted us to be, so that the people of God can thrive and call and be the people of God that has God has called them to be. And because we're a church, we believe in Jesus Christ, we have a mission. We're not just called to sit in here in our little pews, you know, and, and do, the, do the God thing necessarily just for ourselves. We're called to be fulfilling the great commandment of reaching out to others, not only blessing them, but telling them about Jesus Christ, not only by the way we act in our lives, but with the words of our mouth, and to offer that invitation to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to start that journey and to walk alongside them every step that we can to help them grow into a mature disciple of Jesus Christ. That is the end. That is what we're trying to get to, right? But you can't get there if you don't have those structures there. Now, what are those structures? It's the next slide right here, right? Now, i got to be honest. If you told me a number of years ago, hey, pastor, there would be a Sunday morning where you're going to preach on the structures of the United Methodist Church for your sermon, I would have gone, no way, Jose, sign me up for something else, right? But yet, here we are, and I'm going to have some fun with it. Are you okay to have some fun with it if we have some fun along the way? All right, so we're going we're gonna, to, you know, you guys got my sense of humor. You know it's coming, so sorry. I'm just going to apologize ahead in advance. But <laughs> there are key structures in the United Methodist Church. Now, again, none of these exist for the sake of themselves. They exist to do the very mission that we just talked about, right? To be the people of God here, but also reach out to others. And here are some of the structures that you need. And really, any denomination, any church needs these in some degree. It just depends on what they label and what they call them and all these things. These are what the terms we use in our denomination. First of all, you need lay leaders, or in our church specifically, in the past we've had co-lay leaders, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's one of the roles. You need um, a, not, a lay delegate, because we're, as a United Methodist Church, we're not just this church. We're actually a denomination, and actually the way we think about the United Methodist Church is we're just the local entity of the church. So like if you go down to Lithopolis, or you go down to Hopewell, you go over to Asbury, like you're actually still in the same church. You're just in a different location, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's kind of the idea. Like, we're not just us here in Groveport. We are us, wherever United Methodist Church is, you're supposed to think of it as that's your church there, wherever you go. Whether it's here, another country, another place across the world, same thing. But part of that deal is that we have this polity that we get together, and there's a whole bunch of important things that get decided. And our lay delegate, sins, goes every once a year to a specific area, as we're talking about, and does something very important on behalf of our church and other churches as well. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Another thing is the nominations committee. We'll talk more about that, but you may have never heard of it, but we have one, and uh, it's really important. We'll talk about it. There's also the trustees, the staff parish relations committee, which is a word you guys just normally call it staff parish for short, but the official 
official word because they keep changing. It's always changing. You know, they always like to update language. It's Staff Parish Relations Committee. If you call it Staff Parish, I ain't going to bite your head off. It's cool. Do what you need to do. And then finally, uh, a finance committee as well. So let's go to the next slide real quick. So let's just talk a little bit about each of these. But again, that's not the church. If you had all those things in place, it could be any entity under the sun, any business. This is what defines the church. Those structures have to be in place, though, for these to work well. It's like the wall you build on a city. It protects the church. It guards the church. It sets boundaries on the church. It does all those different things so that the church can actually do the churchy things that it's called to do, right? So this is the ends, if you will, for what we're called to do. We're called to do mission. We're called to do have worship and to do it wonderfully. We're called to do prayer and to do it fervently. We're called to get into scripture and let it change our lives. We're called to have, reach out to our children and youth, not only in this church, but in our community. And of course, that last one too, to be for the community. Now that's just actually, I just needed a last thing in there because technically reaching out to the community, that's missions. It's the same thing, right? <laughs> but I need another, you know, when you make these slides, you have little spots, so you need to fill something in. But anyways, so there's one right there, right? So community, reaching out to missions. And once again, this is what the church, this is the heartbeat of who we're called to be. But again, if we just try to set those things up without these others, you're setting up square wheels on a cart. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to bounce around, and at some point, the wheels are going to fall off, and bad things are going to happen, right? And so let's go forward here. Let's talk a little bit about each of these. <clears throat> before we do, uh, you might have heard this before. Maybe. Oh, go back. Sorry, go back to where you just were. You might have heard this before. Uh, there's a meeting, right? Maybe you heard about it, right? <laughs> February 11th. Here in the sanctuary on 9 a.m., we'll start it, right? And we're going to come together. It's, it's an open church invite. If you're part of our church and you say, hey, you know what? Just like Nehemiah, I want to do something. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines. I will come. I will do something. Come that day. You're invited. Uh, you bring donuts? All right, wait. Come get some donuts, right? <laughs> right? So come home and get some free food. Woo. Anybody want to bring coffee? or I don't know, should, I, should I keep it going? Is this like the offering plate? I just keep passing around and see what we get? Uh, but anyways, we're going to come 9 a.m. here in the sanctuary. Be there or be square, right? No, it's all serious. It's like, come and be part of your church. If, you wanna, if you're invested in this, if you're saying, you know what? I want this church to be this again. I want to see this church thrive. I want to see this church grow. I, we've chosen a path, and whether it was one I wanted or not, but I'm still part of this church. This is my church. I want to really grow. Come and be part of it. One thing about that is uh, if you can't be there that day, I know there's a number of you that have told me, uh, talk to me. Because your name may got, get brought up in some nominating of that day, and that's perfectly fine, right? So, but I need to know that you are willing in the first place to serve on any of these things. Um, key with that is, I'm going to say this over and over again, your pastor has so much going on in his life right now, it's real easy to forget a name or two. So what I would love you to do is instead of just telling me after the service, because then I got the twins, and then like life goes crazy for about six hours before I can actually think about what happened on Sunday morning again, uh, what I would love you to do is like email me or text me. That's even better, right? And it's okay to remind me and say, Pastor, just remember. I'm willing to serve. It's okay. You're not going to offend me. More communication this season is, well be is better than uh, little, so uh, just keep that in mind. But again, in case you're wondering, there's a, there's a meeting on February 11th, 9 a.m., and come on out to it. Now, let's just talk a little bit about each of these, right? Why are they important and what they are, and why in our church do we need these? First of all is the lay leaders, and really what a lay leader does is they kind of help oversee the church, right? They're kind of the go-to lay leader person, not just the pastor, but someone to represent the lay people and to help address concerns. You know, if you ever thought about all the roles of what a pastor does on a given week, pastor can't do everything. I don't care if, like, it's the Apple, next Apple CEO comes to your church before going to be the Apple CEO. 
They're not going to be able to do everything. <laughs> Just know that up front. It doesn't matter if it's a big church, small church, or whatever. There's too much stuff to, to go on. And so what a lay leader does is really come alongside the pastor and work with the people. And so they work with the pastor. They help make sure stuff goes smoothly. Whenever someone's, you know, someone gets really upset about something, and it may be appropriate for maybe that lay leader to go talk to the person before even the pastor does, just to sort of kind of hear and have another voice to be part of that. Sometimes they are like that, kind of like a, uh, a mediator person. Whenever you know, you, you're with two people that see a disagreement, they're actually that third person in the room that helps, each, helps those two people see uh, a little bit more eye to eye. Someone who's really good at this would be someone who's good at negotiation. Someone who's like good at finding compromise, yet also at the same time being decisive about it. Like someone that's going to say like, hey, we're going to go this way, go this way, and do this, and just kind of firmly go that way. And also, as I always like to tell them, well, I don't do it here because we have enough preachers, but in all my other churches, you're a backup preacher. If I don't show up for some reason that Sunday, right, if I get, you know, in a car wreck or just, I don't know, something happens in life, guess who's going to preach, right? Have a backup sermon, right, ready in your pocket for those days. So that's what a lay leader does. Let's go on to a couple others here. Lay delegate. Now, I put up C-SPAN because, um, does anybody here watch C-SPAN? Bless you. We got a couple. Amen. I'm so glad God makes different people for the world. You guys are different. Bless you. I don't know why God made you the way he did, but it's for this purpose, right? But uh, because a lot of us can't watch C-SPAN. I can't. Like, I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't, I might be the most interesting thing as far as like what I'm interested about. I just, it's watching paint dry. Right, right. But I'm just saying, some of us watch 0% of the C-SPAN. Yeah, okay, that's what I'm saying, yeah. But yeah, so, but as you're sitting here, you know, you think of a lay delegate. What they do is they go and they be part of big, huge meetings with big denominational stuff, especially in West Ohio, and they help decide things. And so they, they do all the processes you would and kind of like as you watch C-SPAN, a lot of the speeches, a lot of the different things, they work through that. And part of your duty is to represent the church, your local church, that is, but also think about the impact as the whole congregations of all West Ohio. And so it's someone that not only has free time, too, because in, uh, basically we always meet in early June, and it's a multiple days in a row. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's more like five. And so you have to be able to take time off. You know, if you have kids or something you can't find uh, daycare for them, it probably isn't going to work out too well. But just know that this is something that we're going to need in the future. You need a lay delegate, right? Moving on here, we'll go kind of go through them pretty quickly. Uh, trustees, exactly what you think of. I found this fun, fun little thing, and, and it got cut off, but it says, fun fact, it says, you as a trustee get to determine and sell people, no! Right? <laughs> because what a trustee does for a church is these things. They oversee the property and assets. So if you're a handy person and you like fixing things, it's great to be a trustee. If you're a green thumb and you love to make things look beautiful outside, you would be a great trustee. If you are a good at law and you understand law stuff and you love to parse things out, you're a great at trustee. They do some law things. If you uh, love insurance, God bless you. Once again, you C-SPAN people, right? But God bless you, but you are great as a trustee, right? And so those are some things uh, that you have to think through as a trustee, of course, to, to oversee our building, oversee our assets, including the parsonage and other things as well. Let's move forward just uh, with a couple more here. Finance committee does exactly what you think it would. They help the church stay on budget. They always look at what's coming in, looking going out, and making sure, you know, there's seasons of life where God just, there's just abundance and you can just do everything under the sun. And there's also seasons in life, you know, where things get you know, more restricted, and you only have a certain amount of, of assets, and you have to determine how to use those assets as best and wisely as you can. That's what a finance committee helps does, helps sets the budget for a yearly deal. Um, I know you're all going to buy this shirt. I'm going to sell them afterwards. 
You're going to wear them next to no. <laughs> Just <laughs> You're welcome to if you want to go find them. They're, all, they're easy to find online. But anyways, uh, but what a staff parish relations committee does is, is they're basically the in-between. They're like the HR of the church, right? And so they help all the staff know what their job is. They help make the job descriptions. They help interview people for staff. They help do yearly evaluations for the staff. And also, they also work through disagreements. Whenever maybe a staff isn't doing maybe what the job expected to with the church, they help work through that process of making sure it runs smoothly. And also, very importantly, they also help create profiles and, and interview new pastors. So in our system, there's an appointment system. So in theory, the bishop makes an appointment and they send a pastor here. But there's actually a process where the church actually meets with the DS before that and says, hey, here's the type of pastor that we need. We need. And I'm going to use the word profiling. I don't mean that. We use that a lot of times in negative in the world. But what I mean by that is, what kind of pastor do you need? I don't mean like all the ways we normally think of profiling. I mean like, do you need the pastor that's really good at visits? visiting sick people? Do you need the pastor that's really good at preaching an inspirational message? Do you need the pastor that's really good at administration and making sure things and dots are connected? Are you the really good, do you need the pastor that's really good at fundraising, right? Do you need the pastor that's really good at, you know, on and on and on? All pastors have different skill sets and different things. And part of what the DSs and the bishops need to know is, who do you need? And so part of what you do as a staff parish is whenever there's a pastoral transition, you look at what kind of pastor you need. You have a conversation with the DS, and they try to help make that fit in the future to make sure that you get the type of person you need for the future. And then, of course, you need to buy these shirts and make sure you, you wear them. We have what? Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I love you guys, too. Um, the final thing I want to mention was the nominations committee. And no, you don't get an Oscar. Uh, but um, I can't even read it right now because my eyes are so blurry. Uh, we can actually see this a little better. Yeah. So basically, what the nominations committee is help populate these committees. Um, and so what you do is they actually are people. If you're a long-term member of this church and you know everybody, and you know you know the type of people everybody is and who's going to show up to things and do things, you're a great person to be on this committee because. Part of this committee is to help nominate people, and eventually those get voted upon at charge conference, and the church has a say in it, but they help put a list of names together to go and ask, hey, will you serve on this committee for these coming years? Um, and um, I just wanted to just add there just real quick, is kind of our polity in the United Methodist Church is that the pastor actually decides who goes on that, believe it or not. Like, the pastor has all the authority to just name who they want on the nominations committee. Um, that's not who you guys are, though, right? That's not, there's a but there. Um, and so one of the things I, of course, want to do is, is work with you all to make sure we, we have our a current nominations committee, right, that can do this and do this well. And I don't want it just to be me naming some people. We're going to do it together. Um, in case I forgot to mention it, <clears throat> last slide. Did I mention that there's a meeting <laughs> on February 11th, 9 a.m.? Right, uh, just to find a couple final thoughts on that. Um, just be prepared that day. Again, let God lay it on your heart. Are you Nehemiah? Is God calling you to just risk something, be something for this church, and to make this community again flourish? Final thoughts on that is also just nominations. Uh, that day, just to kind of know what to expect, we're going to basically wipe clean the slate. Um, so if you're on a committee and you were supposed to roll off, you know, ideally what happens is normally you serve in these committees for three years and then you roll off and other people roll. We're just wiping everything clean, right? There's no one on any of these committees, and we're going to, that day, actually create these committees 
And so if you're, a, if you're someone who's sitting there going, oh, phew, thank goodness I just got off my trustees for three years. Sorry, you might get denominated again, I'm just saying. So uh, uh, but just wanted to let you know. So we're going to wipe these clean and do this. And the day you're going to be able to nominate yourself, or volunteer yourself is really the way to say that, or uh, nominate other people as well, uh, so long as they're here in the, the building or, um, well, in the worship area, or uh, that they have told me that they're willing to serve. And so that's what you can kind of expect that day. And we're going to just, we're going to build a wall, guys. We're going to build a wall again. Let's pray. Lord, as we're here today, we thank you so much for your love and even though this scripture is very specific in our message today, it's very specific for exactly where we are and exactly where this church is. God, we know that there's these certain structures that help this church do the things you've called it to do, and to be actually a church. So God, we're praying right now, Lord, help us to set a good foundation. Help us to set a wall that not only looks beautiful, but really truly is anchored and makes this church protected from trip-ups later down the road. And that one day this church could again thrive and not that it's already thriving, but it could thrive and grow to be something it has never even been in the past, that it could grow and be great for this community. That people would hear about Grove Fort United Methodist Church and they would say, oh, I've been dying to go to that church. I've heard so much about it. That's what we want for you, for your kingdom. And so God, use us in these moments. Speak to our hearts, especially those, Lord, that are still de deciding what their future is. Speak to those hearts, Lord, that uh, are sitting there and wondering, I know I'm going to be part of this church, but do I say yes and, and volunteer for something or not? Lord, just guide us. Guide us by your hand. May your will be done in our life. Amen.